You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, and I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right, I am excited to introduce our Inverse Podcast guest for today. It is someone that I've met um, previously, and I believe that also met Jared once before as well. Uh, it is Kelly Nikandeha, who is the co-director and chief storyteller for Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi. She is the co-founder of Amaharo Africa, a conversation between theologians and practitioners within the African context. She is also the author of Adopted, The Sacraments of Belonging in a Fractured World. Uh, so welcome to the guest, Kelly. Thank you. It's a joy and did to I, meet you. Hopefully I pronounced um, Emma Horo correctly. Is that right? Emma Horo. Emma Horo. Okay. <laughs> it's like peace or shalom. In oh, Korea. that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, well, Kelly, before we um, really dive in and get started, could you um, just share with us the passage that you identified and read that for us? Yes, so I'll be reading this morning, uh, this evening, out of Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was, and when she saw him, she saw that he was a good, fine baby and she hid him away for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and she plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and she placed it among the reeds along the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to her baby brother. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river And while her attendants walked beside her, she saw a basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw a child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get you a nursemaid from the Hebrew women who could nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the women took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him up out of the water. Hmm. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearing of his word. Kelly, we're so excited to have you on. And I'm aware that um, this is exciting time for you as um, this project that you've poured your heart into, uh, as this episode will go to air, is being released uh so uh, define what the women of the exodus teach us about freedom did i get the subtitle right from memory um 
and uh, it's and in fact maybe um, before I ask you about um, your introduction to the scriptures, it, there's this um, lovely couple of sentences from our mate Sarah Bessie about your book in the forward that uh, might be helpful in terms of people framing a, a little bit about the book coming out, but also um, your heart and the hermeneutic in which we might approach this passage that you've chosen as well. Uh, Sarah writes, for too long, the notion of biblical womanhood has felt weak and ineffectual, a cookie-cutter version of the 1950s sitcom that didn't even exist in real life, and yet it crippled and silenced generations of women in the church. Yet in Defiant, Kelly lays out a feast for us of the truth about biblical womanhood, the resistance, the strength, the civil disobedience, the collaboration, the truth-telling, the drumming, the wit, the holy, liberated power of women who know their God. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. We'd love to hear from you in terms of uh, um, you finding your place in this story and the story of this story connecting with your own story. When did the scriptures um, come alive for you? When do you remember being introduced to the Bible? I was first introduced to the Bible uh, by my two mothers. Huh. Uh, I will say one of them is my adoptive mother. And I remember the storybook that she used when I was little. I remember the, the gentle watercolored pictures of Queen Esther on her throne and Joseph hmm. with that brilliantly colored coat. Uh, and I remember the picture of this little baby in a basket among the reeds and this beautifully dressed, uh, we would have called her a princess at that age, <laughs> leaning <laughs> into the water to pick up this baby. Um, and so that was one of those, you know, my mother introduced me uh, through stories and that was a very visual introduction, mm. very visual memory. Um, but my other mother um, is my mother church and that's the Catholic church. Mm. And I remember sitting in the grown-up church, sitting in mass, and listening to scripture read mm. without commentary. Mm -hmm. And I, there was something I always, and maybe that's part of where that, that began, just loving to listen to the Psalms read, listen to an Old Testament text, listen, you know, to stand and listen to the, the gospel read. I. Mm -hmm. Love And even now, there are times I just have to go and hear the stories read out loud. And, and I go to the, the local Catholic cathedral so I can hear somebody not tell me what it means, but just read to me. Mm. So, so I think both the, the, the sight and the sound, you know, from my two different mothers. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. So I'm curious, um, as you think about those early encounters with scripture, um, was it, was your encounter with scripture something that was turning the world upside down or holding up the status quo as it was? Mm -hmm. I'm curious, was it liberative? What was your encounter with scripture early on? Uh, well, I grew up in Orange County, California to a middle-class uh, white, well, I grew up, um, I'm adopted. So while my birth mother uh, is Mexican. Mm. My adoptive family, uh, white, and while we were in the Catholic Church, they quickly 
moved into the evangelical church. And so initially scripture was not liberative. It was very tame. It was very domesticated. It was very much upholding the status quo. Mm. And yet I loved it. But I didn't love, I didn't love the easy, uh, this is how you do it. This is how you apply it. Um, I, I, w- I was the, the freshman in high school who got permission to go to the college group because in high school group, they just did um, very easy interpretations and very, uh, lots of antics and not a lot of, they didn't want, they didn't want to go deep. <laughs> Mm. And but the college group, they were reading it and they were going deep. And as long as I, you know, didn't disrupt them, I was welcome there. And, you know, and when I got older, I remember, you know, listening to sermons after college, going to church and listening to sermons and thinking, I want more of that. Mm. And so I went to seminary, not because mm. I wanted to be a pastor or be ordained, but I wanted the same tools that, that they had. To be able yeah. to dive deep, just for my own, my own study, my own curiosity, um, and and that is when I started to see that this this is a text that is uh, different from what I had been taught, um, and uh-huh. it started to change the way that I saw not only those stories, but then started seeing the world around me. Um, mm. I'd say that was combined with meeting. Um, my husband, uh, so my uh, Claude is uh, a Burundian, born in East Africa, grew up in extreme poverty, you know, the less than a dollar a day kind mm. of poverty. And I think the combination of being in close proximity with somebody who had such a different understanding of the world, of poverty, yes. of colonization, of um, violence and racism, and, and then starting to see the text in different ways all of a sudden it became explosive and mm-hmm. started changing how I saw my own world, um, which of course has been somewhat disruptive to some of the people around me. Yeah. <laughs> As holiness always is. <laughs> okay, no going back. <laughs> yeah. What were some, I'm curious, what were some of those ways that it began to disrupt, you know, the world, how you were interpreting your world around you in those moments. Right. Well, one of the things that, I mean, the Moses story has always been, has always been something that has captivated me, but we'll talk more about that a little later. (laughs) Other texts that really um, started to work on me was, were the Jubilee texts in scripture. Mm. Oh yeah. So we get, and I first encountered this idea of Jubilee uh, in Luke 4. So mm-hmm. as Luke tells the story, Jesus, the first time he you know, is, is talking in public that we hear about, he pulls out the Isaiah scroll in his synagogue, and he reads about people being set free. It's a, we say Jubilee. He's mm-hmm. quoting Isaiah, right? But what Jubilee is, is an economic practice. It is, mm. it is a text about how are we going to recalibrate the economy so right. that we're not permanently poor. Right. Yeah. How are we going to make sure there's always a way for people to get back in after the rough and tumble of some bad years in the economy? Right. How are we going to make sure that, to the best of our ability, there is equity? 
Mm. People are not living under indebtedness. And so I approached it as, you know, somebody who loved the text, but my husband approached it as somebody who knew what it was to be so poor. I remember the first time he told me there would be no better news to my father who grew up never having a bank account. He was a pastor and a church planter, but he never got paid much. He got paid in chickens and mangoes and favors Mm -hmm. from church members. That there would have been no better news for my dad than to find out all of his debts were wiped out and that he was going to get a family plot back. Right. And so I think the combination of, you know, we always joke that, you know, I'm book smart and he's street smart. (laughs) But but I think that coming together, we started to to see the text and go, oh, wow, real life. freedom from debt and poverty. That's where Jesus started. He didn't start talking about heaven. He didn't start talking about soul care. He started talking about the, the world you're living in now. You are struggling <laughs> under deep, deep indebtedness. Yeah. And we are going to start doing something about that today. Yeah. Well, yeah I, I love how you put it in terms of he didn't start talking about soul care. I think it would come as a surprise to many that, uh, you know, uh, attending a Bernie Sanders rally would feel a lot more like Luke four yes. than listening to Tony Robbins or yes. um, reading a book by Eckhart Tolle. Like it's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when you, you know, when you start seeing that, you start realizing, wow, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus was, was radical yes. um, in that he just went to the heart of what was, what was the deepest pain in his community. Yeah. And well, how can you not think about materiality? How can you not think about discipleship differently after you start there? I mean, he sets this trajectory and I followed it. And (laughs) so that's how, that's how that really disrupted the way that, you know, I see and understood or yeah, Yeah. understood the text. It's interesting that you say that because, um, so literally last week, all last week with my students before we went into break and then permanently going to be online for us of this semester. But, but we maybe were working we should through, actually name that, Drew, depending on when people are listening. But yeah, we're, yeah, we're actually we in are, this moment where the World right. Health Organization has declared a international pandemic with the corona right. virus. Like it's, right. mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So literally, as we speak, everything is shut down. I mean, our world's, mm-hmm. at least my world has been shut down, certainly. And in some ways, it's precisely the economic system, the brokenness of it. Uh, people were feeling those pains, especially right now, because of just the inequalities and the wealth gaps that exist. I mean, it's just it's disproportionately impacting people when you have these kind of crises and pandemics um, hitting our society. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but last week I was working with my students in my Anabaptist theology class and we're looking, walking through Luke um, and focusing on the theme of Jubilee. So, um, I mean, I think for them, I mean, they had never heard it before, right? They never even knew that that was a thread and throughout the gospel of Luke was that Jubilee and economic, Mm -hmm. you know, implications of it that were flipping the, the, 
the expectations for, you know, what society, the kingdom of God was flipping all of that on its head, right? For the yeah. wealthy and the poor. So we're walking through that. And there, I think, begin, at the beginning stages of what you're talking about, of kind of coming to grasp with Jesus's economic message uh, for society. Yeah. We, uh, my husband and I uh, started a, a conversation in Africa called Amahoro where we would get African thinkers and practitioners together to talk about African challenges. Uh, and one of the years was like, oh, we have to do, we have to talk about gospel economics. Mm-hmm. So we did. So the whole four days we were together, we all talked about um, what, what does the gospel have to say? And so, of course, we talked about Jubilee and we talked about Joseph as a pure man, but not such a great economic practitioner. And we, you know, we really got into what is the text, what do these scriptures tell us about economics? Uh, and out of that grew, like my husband now has a bank. You know, he, he started a bank in Burundi to make a way for people to get, you know, 98% of Burundians are unbanked because they can't yeah. they have enough money to open an account, let alone to maintain an account. But yeah. that means that they never get a chance, those that can grow businesses. They, so he, out of that, out of doing this deep theological work, he ends up starting, you know, a bank. And we now have over 40,000 families, 40,000 members. Yeah, Christ, no, that's amazing. The economy. Yeah, that is amazing. It, so it really can be a very tangible, you know, right. talk about your, the way you see the scriptures just changing the way you actually function and engage in your communities you know yeah absolutely and this is the fascinating like the fact that our lord talks more about economics than he does any issues to do with some of the things that the church is um uh fixated um, if not fetishizing um such as sexuality um but i I love the way that uh, your marriage itself it 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 holds these dynamics that are present in the text that you've chosen that what the coronavirus means for um, this uh, racially mixed miscellaneous people that become referred to as the Hebrews in the book of Exodus, where there's economic realities um, uh, that mean your, uh, your life and the life of your children depend on the life of the larger economy and so, Kelly, your book coming out at this moment, um, the importance of doing this work, what you embody in, in your marriage, in your ministry, in your family, um, uh, this is the work for all of us at the moment because uh, people are needing economic good news and um, some of the stories that are, are lying around look more like Pharaoh than they do being drawn out as a people. Right. Yeah, the pharaonic forces are a strong with us yeah sadly <laughs> well sh- shall we pav- pivot a little bit um uh as we continue to explore um y- your ministry and your work through the text and can i say kelly this is really exciting for me as um uh, i've recently got married in the last year and a half and my wife uh is expecting in the next three weeks so to to choose um a text that talks about um, a beautiful, good, tov mm-hmm. baby um, uh, was very rich f- for me as I prayed about this text um, before you came on. So thanks. This is this is exciting for me personally, but in the midst of uh, what we're facing, the need for us to have stories that can animate um, 
uh, a, a grounded, wise compassion instead of the um, uh, frantic, the difference of being in solitary um, out of concern for others versus being isolated in fear of others. Mm-hmm. We desperately need stories like this one. So mm. um, where would you like to start? <laughs> well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll just take the, I'll, we'll just walk through the, the story. Yeah, please. Um, of course, the story really, it's hard to start in the middle. The reality is <laughs> we're, we're starting a little ways into the, the narrative of liberation, but uh, here, here we are, and we find um, these three, the story focuses on three women. Mm. And we start with um, the woman, the Levite woman married to the, um, the man, and uh, her name is Jochebed, we find out later in the, in the story. Mm. And Jochebed, under incredibly difficult times, uh, has a baby at great risk. And I, you know, I think that there are still, in many communities, it is still a great risk to mm-hmm. conceive and birth a child. Right. The mortality rate for African-American women in our country sure. is a risk. Burundian women who, I mean, it is a risk and it is never assured that you're going to make it to the other side of delivery. So I, I don't want to rush past the fact that just being willing to, to conceive and bear a child under duress is in itself an act of great risk and great hope. And so we start off seeing this woman, you know, it's a 50-50 chance, a boy, but here we go. Mm. And so she conceives and births a child and she, she sees him. She says he's Tove. Yeah. It's, it's, the word Tove. It's beautiful, is isn't it? It's, it's like, you know, the, God created the world and it, it was light and it was dark and it was good. It was tove. I mean, it's tove, it's tove, it's tove, all of creation. Yeah. And this woman looks at her son and says, despite what Pharaoh says, I know you are tove. You, you have all that creation goodness in you and I yeah. see it. And she names it, but then she knows she has to hide him. My guess is she, you know, she hit him as long as she could before he got too mobile or his lungs got too, uh, you know, strong and, and she couldn't keep him quiet. Kelly, um, can I ask, um, do, you think, do you think the fact that we don't find out her name at this part of the story is also part of that hiding? Ah, I had never thought of that before. I'm, I'm just aware that, ah. like... I mean, some stories we don't find out the characters' yeah. names. Um, but it's it's just kind of odd that at this point where, I don't know, it's almost like um, uh, it's the start of an espionage film or something and it, the, the director's not giving you details because they want to bring you into the tension that the character is in. Do, do you know what I... Yes, I love that. Why didn't we have this chat before I wrote this chapter, Jared? (laughs) (laughs) For for the follow-up, for the... (laughs) And and just, um, I also love that, um, and again, it's because, like, I'm, I'm like, super clucky to the point of, like, um, being weepy that uh, I'm overwhelmed that there's this little life that shares my DNA 
And though I've raised um, one now very big boy who's <laughs> six foot five tall, very dark and handsome, and that's why it's clear that he's not biologically <laughs> my son. And I'm, I'm raising um, uh, uh, two, two other boys. This is the first time there's a child coming along that um, uh, shares my DNA and I've never been around for the birthing, uh, um, by God's grace, I, I met my kids um, as ready-mades, as um, uh, already fantastic, and I just um, show up as, as an afterthought. But there is this beautiful thing in the text that to go back to one of the um, creation myths of the Jewish people and its radical protest that reality, materiality, the earth soil, trees, waterways are good. Yes. And, and this central Jewish story, which is an affirmation of creation, um, and that is true of all of reality and how important it is for, like, um, people in the shadow of enslavement and empire to hear that, that that is true of all of creation. And here in this story, we have it, we have it on the macro in this one child that w- what God has spoken over all of creation is spoken over and it is told. And even in the Septuagint, um, the translation of good um, uh, translates as uh, beautiful. Mm. Um, uh, or, or the word glory is also connected um, to this goodness, to this, there is a glory, there is a goodness, there is a beauty um, of this one child uh, and at a time when we're seeing uh, death tolls talked about nightly on the news, yes. that we need to name that um, these aren't numbers. These are souls that are created good and beautiful and glorious. And so I, I just didn't want to rush on from that moment. Like, Yeah, and you know, I mean, even as you're, emphasizing i remember especially when um black lives matter movement was kind of unfolding and the hebrews passage of this right his own interpretation of this text where it interprets it as beautiful right from the greek and and for me like reading that it was it was uh kind of like here's this hebrews life who would have been deemed as invaluable and here it's being deemed as beautiful. And it was just kind of connecting with me in a particular, in a special way because of, you know, black lives being seen as so disposable, right? As black yeah. people, as Trayvon Martin, as mm-hmm. Mike Brown, their lives seem so disposable. And even um, folks, not necessarily from police violence, but just because of just all the havoc of, you know, living in poverty and fighting over you know, territory and just all this craziness that goes on in the neighborhood and, and to re to be reminded and then to remind others um, that their lives are beautiful, that they are beautiful, that they're precious, that they're valuable, right? That God sees the dignity in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, there's just something powerful. I think about that, making that connection. Yeah. Well, unbelievably so. Even before that, you know, actually the first picture we get of the Hebrews in this story is of them being fertile, being mm. fruitful and multiplying. And again, it's pointing us back yeah. to a, that this, when we first meet the Hebrews, they are doing exactly what they were created to do in the garden. 
They yeah. are they're fertile and they're in a verdant land. And so before they were slaves, right. uh, they were just these beautiful yeah. creation shaped community of people. Yeah. Um, they were flourishing first. That's where we story. Yeah. And I think it is so important to know that that, that is our root system. We, yeah. 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 Kelly, that's fascinating. Cause it's, it's almost that it's life itself, which is the threat to empire. Uh-huh. So, like, um, like survival is a form of resistance. Yes. Flourishing is a form of resistance and, um, domination is always threatened by a, a flourishing, a fruitfulness, a, um, Drew, as you were talking about, um, the, the black lives uh, matter movement, I had a really powerful Bible study with a, a dear friend last week from um, Zambia. And, um, he was just sharing the re- realities of, um, uh, uh, being an African Christian in um, Australia and the reality of the, some of the assumptions that go into preaching and uh, reading the scriptures. And um, we looked at um, the Song of Songs, uh, chapter one, verse five, and I asked him to read it. And he said, I am dark. Uh, it says, uh, dark I am, uh, yet lovely. Oh, right. The and translations around that. Right. Isn't that inc- like, inc- yep. and uh, I was like, okay, so the NRSV has, um, I am black and I'm beautiful. Right. And he's like, what, why doesn't it have the yet? And I'm like, right. cause it's not in there. It's yeah. not in there. It's, right. it's not in there. That's right. Um, and, and this Kelly is exactly what you're drawing us to like with this text is um, the ways in which um, those who aren't nameless, we treat like they're nameless, right? <laughs> right. Mm. right? You can see why we could preach this text for a long time. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, uh, we're happy for you to go for an hour and a half, Kelly. You, th- this is fantastic. <laughs> so, so here we have Jochebed. I, I name her because it allows me to, to, to recognize her, who she is. So yeah. I, so I'm going to do something the narrator hasn't chosen to do yet, but I, yeah. so here's Jochebed and she has this beautiful boy and she hides him as long as she can. And I imagine her looking across that river. Mm-hmm. My, now my method is that I do exegesis. I meditate mm-hmm. over the text and then I imagine I allow, and I pray that it's the spirit that, is, is you know, kind of blowing into those imagining. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Jochebed looking across that river, maybe when she's washing her clothes, maybe when she's taking a bath herself, and one day sees a woman who seems to be unlike the others. Mm. The other royal women, they're, they frolic, and they, they, mm. see, they, they don't see me or anything that's happening over here. But one woman seems different. And I imagine them catching eyes once. And so when it comes to that moment, and the text is very intentional, she put her son in this basket that she constructed. And there's a whole, I mean, we can talk about the ways in which that echoes Hagar and how Hagar put her son underneath a bush to die. Like she wow, I didn't the, make that connection. That's incredible. The same word. And she, so I imagine, did she put him there with that same sense that just like Hagar didn't know if her son was going to live or die? I don't either. 
but it was a very intentional putting him. And then I, I think she guided him across that river. Wouldn't most mothers do that? Most mothers I knew would, they would, I think when I was younger, I thought she just pushed him across the river, but maybe being a mother myself now, I'm like, no, I wouldn't push my son across. I would take him, you know, I would would be very strategic in where I put that raft. Um, and so I think no, not one push as in see you later, but yeah. pushing across like her head bobbing, bobbing yes. above the water, guiding, yeah, pushing across. Wow. And a wa- waters that would have had hippos and crocodiles and, you mm. know, all sorts of dangerous things to navigate. And of course, all of our ancient understandings of water, right? Dangerous. Leviathan lurks. Mm-hmm. This woman, this mother says, uh-uh, all of creation goodness is on this raft and I am taking him across and I'm putting him in the reeds nearest where this woman seems to often go. Wow. And I wow. think she took such enormous risk that this woman is not like the others. Hmm. And that to me is such a deep personal challenge because I currently struggle with believing are there women in my are there are there women that are part of the white women that are part of the 81 percent put this current president are there some of them that might be partners with me if i gave them a chance Hmm. it it haunts me because most often i don't want to take the risk but she took an audacious risk that maybe this one woman is different. Mm-hmm. And she puts her treasure, her, her son, at her footstep, really, at her feet. Wow. It's an incredible act of enemy love, isn't it? Yeah. That someone in the courts of Pharaoh mm-hmm. might remember their humanity while looking at my precious baby. Mm-hmm. Seeing your enemy, like... Not just yeah. like visual, not visualizing, but like seeing their humanity and believing in the potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's as you. I mean, it's nothing to the level of what you talk about. It just reminds me, like I had to, this past week. I, I made a choice to kind of take a chance on someone that I'm just like yeah. not sure, right? And so <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, what you're describing is so much deeper in terms of trusting, you know, the child, but then to see this. I've never really pause to think about, you know, just that act of seeing, identifying this woman and seeing the potentiality there, right? Um, and mm. taking a risk with your own child for their deliverance. That's really powerful. And, and I imagine it was high risk. There were no guarantees. Totally. Right. And, right. and it was a relinquishing. Right. It was Indeed. a letting go of mm. her son. Mm. And then she goes back in my, she goes back across the river, mm-hmm. but her little, her daughter was watching Miriam yeah. adolescent, you know, maybe what, 12, 13 years old. She was watching. Yeah. So she's off to the side watching. And then we, we hear that um, I will call her Bethia tradition, Jewish tradition calls her Bethia, yeah. but one of Pharaoh's daughters, probably not even his favorite. She comes down with her royal retinue to the water to take a bath and she gets into the water 
and the reeds are wiggling and she hears a cry and tell you go get that baby she tells her maid go get the baby you know, go get go get that see what's in the basket and here's do you think that was the first time she saw a baby on the shores of the nile oh wow if 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 there were babies who were being killed and plunged under the nile I imagine that one day she was walking on the beach barefoot and a baby washes up on the shore. Mm. And just like when I saw that picture of that little boy, that little refugee boy on the shore in Turkey, yeah. wow. she, sees, she sees the evidence that the rumors are true. This is what my father is doing. It's, it, she can't deny it because there is this bloated little baby at her feet before her father's functionaries can come and take away the evidence, there it is, there he is. But what can she do? I mean, this is, maybe this is where I insert myself again in her, you know, this is where I think, yes, she's a woman of privilege. Mm. She grew up in Pharaoh's house. Mm. But she knows I'm one of many. And just like Hagar was, you know, there's an old story that Hagar was actually the daughter of another pharaoh. And he gave her to, to Abraham and Sarah as, a, as an offering, as a, like, go, take her. She knows I could be like Hagar. I could be given away. My privilege wow. doesn't secure me. So I think she, yes, I'm a woman of privilege, but limited privilege. What can I do? I can't always get an audience with my father. I, I'm not his favorite. I, what can I do? Because it's exactly what I felt like when I saw that picture of that little boy. What can I do? I, yes, I'm, I'm a light-skinned woman from a middle-class family. I'm educated. But what can I do? And feeling that I am both privileged, but I am also paralyzed to know what to do. And I imagine her looking at that dead baby, not knowing what to do. You know, and so here this baby cries out. And the first thing she must have thought is, this one is alive. Wow. This one is alive. But also, oh, he's alive. Right, that means I have a choice to make. So here she's holding, the, by now she's holding this crying baby in her hand. I mean, I don't even know if she was really fully thinking, right? You're just holding this crying baby. And out comes young Miriam. Should I get you somebody to <laughs> your baby? The entrapment was complete. Yeah. <laughs> right? she's, you know, she's like, oh, is this my baby now? I mean, I, but when she's a go, yes, go. Right? Yeah. And the minute she said yes to Miriam, she is now part of the resistance. Mm. She is in it. Yeah. Yeah. She has jumped into the Nile, Leviathan mm. and all, and said, Yeah, I'm in this. Hmm. And of course we Kelly, know I, I just wanted um what you just shared is so incredibly profound around the vulnerability of so-called privilege um and um uh you know e even in terms of how definitions of whiteness work 
um, uh, and how you can slide in and out of certain definitions depending on um, how invested you are in Pharaoh's courts. Yes. Um, and there are ways like that um, a part of the reason why people in fear support such options which are horrific for themselves um, is a sense that, well, it, if I'm not with the powerful, I'm going to be with the powerless and how terrifying that is in a, a, a very real sense for people. Um, Drew and I, an important mentor for us both was Uncle Vincent Harding. And mm. um, uh, one of the times I spent time with him, uh, he stopped people using the word um, privilege and in his slow, um, gently spoken way, um, he would say, um, Jared, I need you to find another word. It is not a privilege to benefit from the oppression of another. And what, what I appreciate about, I know, like, I'm not American, so word police games, like, uh, aren't fun for me. Like, uh, um, I know that American culture, particularly um, uh, some parts of culture, that kind of stuff is real important. Australians, um, it, you've been here, Kelly, you know, we, um, we handle that stuff differently. Yeah. But what I appreciated so much is that he wasn't asking us to play a game with language. He was asking us to use a language that opens up the possibilities of conversion, transformation, mm. metanoia for um, the daughters of Pharaoh who are oppressed on the banks and vulnerable in their own way. Yes. Knowing that um, we only find our freedom in working for the freedom of those who don't have it. Exactly. Which again, Again, this is, um, this is Jubilee, right? Um, uh, we are saved from our wealth through the poor and the poor are saved from their poverty through those with wealth. Mm -hmm. And the aftermath of that conversion is community. Mm -hmm. right? and, and we're seeing those dynamics here. I thought that was so beautiful how you brought that out. Like yeah. I, I'm seeing things in the text right. that... Um, yeah, that, that's in, incredible. Um, may I mention a, another thing that occurs mm, to me as, as you teach? Um, I'm aware that the word for basket, um, she got a papyrus basket for him, is the same word as ark. Yes, in the Noah narrative. And so, again, I'm thinking in the same way that Tov has given us all of creation, mm. Um, this narrative that uh, the goodness of creation uh, is actually ruined through domination, through violence, and, and yet here is hope, um, uh, fragile, precarious hope placed in this little ark. And as you were talking about um, swimming across her her head bo bobbing above the water as she didn't just once push and say see you later but pushed her baby across um that here we have um the, the character of the most high being played out by somebody whose name we don't even know at this part of the narrative mm -hmm. here is god's concern for this little ark this hope mm -hmm. um uh, which is good all of creation uh, in, in this one like 
precious, vulnerable little child and and this fierce woman raising this incredible worship leader, Miriam, um, who has the um, the sass and the cheekiness to go, what are you going to do with your child? That, I mean, that that's like, I mean, this is such like an amazing affirmation of the divine feminine mm-hmm. in the role that, um, that uh, this is God as the one bobbing with the head above the water mm-hmm. in mercy for all of creation, having a new start without violence. You know, and I, I, I myself am, am also an adopted child. Yeah, wow. And I think there was something about recognizing all that she did you know, that relinquishment was the best choice she could make in that moment mm-hmm. because all the injustice of the empire was breathing down her neck. Mm-hmm. And the loving thing she could do in that moment was to relinquish him to this woman and hope. But she did everything she could, right? She did everything she could. Mm-hmm. And, as, an, and as, as somebody who's been relinquished, mm-hmm. it was so healing for me to see the love of a birth mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when I think about how God relinquished Jesus in the incarnation, let him come down. And I think God right. is a birth mother. He knows what it's like to yeah. relinquish his child. Mm. You know, wow. I don't know. I, sorry, that goes a little different direction, but. Um, no, that's good. Not at all. I mean, this is the stuff, right? This is, this is walking around in, in the text. Um, that is so profound. Yeah. Drew, anything before I go on? Um, <laughs> I feel like every, honestly, honestly, you're bringing the story alive uh, for me in a way that it has never been. I mean, I, my mind is going all over the place. I'm envisioning um, <laughs> this scene. I'm there. You've taken me to the bank of the river. Yeah. I'm there. I'm right there and I'm, I'm seeing it and it's, it's really powerful. So thank you for just walking us through like this. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So here, Jochebed, right? She goes back to the other side of the river. Miriam, you know, kind of entices, invites, entraps this daughter of Pharaoh. Mm. And, um, I mean, we could say a lot about young Miriam. Mm. You know, I, I think there's something about the young to envision those unorthodox connections. Mm-hmm that she thought, oh, I know what we can do here. (laughs) And maybe these women would have been ships passing in the night, but she actually says, no, 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 you guys can get together. We're going to work out a nursemaid contract. We're going to, this, there is something here. And, and, and the vision of the young to see what we don't see or can't fully imagine to get these two women together. I, I, I don't think we can, I can't overlook, you know, she is, like a head to Mimi. She is like Emma Gonzalez. She is like all mm. of these young, fierce women who see and do because um, they have different eyes. Yes. Right? They're, they're the young shoot, you know, coming out of those dead stumps. They, mm. you know, anyways, I, I love that, that she jumps in and gets these women together. Um, and, and I think it's the birth of what I will call the, the Nile Network because I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe these are the only women who tried this. I believe this is yeah. just the story we the, the one story we know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, 
you know, I think, yeah, I, maybe that's the heart of this, this part of the story. I, I think that the women probably went back and forth a few times. I, I think mm. the beginning of a, of a friendship and I imagine, you know, I often hear people talk about, oh, white tears, you know, those, those white or light skinned women and their easy, cheap tears, you know, ugh, women of color don't want them. They don't have time for that. There's legitimate anger <laughs> on the other side of the river. Mm. Imagine the first time that they sat together and had to navigate Jochebed's legitimate anger. Mm. And yet the tears of Bethia. Yeah. But that over time, I, I want, I, I, I believe that over time, Bethia would have been informed and educated by the anger of her Hebrew sisters. She would have sat eventually and, and listened to Jochebed. She would have maybe even met Shifra and Pua, the midwives, and yeah. heard from these two women who had, who had the audacity to defy her dad. I want to hear that. Mm. I want to meet them. Mm. I imagine that she had to listen. And I imagine that when they would talk about the injustices, she'd want to say, we're not all like that. We're not, not all of us Egyptian women are like that. And yet have to, mm. and yet have to rein it in and listen and, and allow herself to be educated by the sensibilities of these women until mm. she cried the tears with them. And she felt the heat of the anger with them. And then she could be a true ally in submission to and in partnership with them. Yeah. You know, I yeah, yeah. I uh, live here in Arizona part of the year, and I, when my kids were little. The first day of school I met, uh, I went to school with my little, you know, second graders. Um, and there was a woman standing out front, and she was wearing a hijab, dark skin. She had her, her, her little one with her. I live in Arizona, which is a red state and not a lot of Muslim women in our area. Um, and just for the Australians, Kelly, um, uh, red referring to the Republican Party. Um, so this is, this is Trump voters. Yes. Right. So I introduced myself to her and we, you know, exchanged niceties and little by little, uh, well, actually rather quickly, a friendship grew. We would talk every day mm. when we dropped off our kids and, I would teach, I introduced her to the office lady and I kind of, you know, tried to, tried to make her feel a little more comfortable, but oh, maybe we were three weeks into our friendship and she confides in me that she found out she was pregnant with her third child. Mm. Now, I, by this time I had learned her name is Tahani and she mm. um, is a immigrant from Palestine and, you know, so she's pregnant with her third child and not too long after that, I get a frantic phone call from her. She's driving home from the doctor's office and her son has a hole in his heart, two holes in his heart. Goodness. She is terrified. And she, we, before you know it, we're making doctor's appointments and we're going together and we're listening to doctors and I'm asking the doctors to slow down, explain that again. Um, you know, we're in it together. Doctor's appointments, um, changing of diet. Um, I'm taking her kid to and from school so she can rest because it's a high-risk pregnancy. You know, she's like, do you think, do you think I should pray more? 
I'm like, well, it couldn't hurt. And says, so, so why don't you pray to Allah and I'll pray to Jesus and we just will trust that God is good and you know, God will take care of our little baby boy here. Um, and we ended up, she wanted me to be in the delivery room with her. Wow. She knew, she knew as an adoptive mom, I've never had that experience. Mm. So she invited me to be in the room with her and to be holding her when they were, when she gave birth to our baby, she called him. And he arrived healthy. No hold in his heart. And, um, you know, but shortly after that, I went back to Burundi and her family moved and you know, we stayed friends. But, you know, just this last, just a few months ago, I finally made it to her little village outside of Ramallah. Yeah, wow. And I got to see Robbie. He's seven years old now. And but I tell the story because as a, as a white fairly a woman who's benefited a lot from the system. <laughs> I didn't know how hard it was to be a Muslim colored mm. Palestinian mm. immigrant in my country, but mm. she pulled me into her story because she needed help. Yeah. She had only known me for a few weeks, but she didn't have any other options. She, her husband was traveling a lot and she was alone. She needed somebody and she, she had to take a risk on me. Like Jochebed had to take a risk on Bethia, mm. and just hoping that this white lady is hopefully she going to be she's going to be in it with me. Mm. But by doing that, she invited me to see the world different. Yeah, and I learned more about her faith than I've ever learned before. And we would sit together with our kids, and she would tell me what it was like growing up in you know outside of Ramallah and what it was. Mm what she was afraid of for her boys and the sadness that they didn't speak Arabic and the fear of them being brown skinned and how people were like, all of that came out because she pulled me in, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I really believe that for women like me who have some measure of privilege, mm. our paralysis and our inaction, it almost demands partnership. We need, yes. we need women to invite us in and educate us because otherwise we are lost. We, I needed Tahani to, 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 I needed her. She changed me. Mm. And it was that solidarity has forever kind of shifted how I interact with other women. Yeah. Uh, and so I also see you know, in this story, there is this sense that these women had to lean into each other. They had to, this unorthodox partnership, um, it was part of, it was a liberation strategy. It was part, it, there was no way they were going to get free except together. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I could go on. I mean, I do. If you read the book, I go on and talk about the neighbors, right? Mm. So I say that the women of Exodus, they, what did they do? They defied Pharaoh. They rescued Moses. And they plundered mm. Egypt. Yeah. And it was through these women and their neighborliness that all the treasures of Egypt moved. Yes. They gave. they gave because they had favor with their neighbors. Well, you can call it plunder, but I bet you it was really reparations. Yeah. I bet it was Jubilee. It felt yeah, like that's plunder. Right. Yeah, it yeah, felt yeah. like plunder to Pharaoh, but I bet you it felt like Jubilee to all of the Hebrews who were running out, right? But that there again, there was that relationship yeah. between these women. We ha- we have to do we have to do it together. 
Hmm. Yes. Yeah. And as we imaginatively um, follow you uh, getting wet and dusty in this text, um, I, I wonder if it was that connection that uh, for, for many of us who, um, because of migration, first time in a generation where we're in a reality um, that we do have access to the courts of Pharaoh, Mm. Um, armed conflict is behind us. Uh, if, if we forget our language, if we forget culture, um, some of us find it um, uh, completely easy to blend in and no one ever asks. And, and yet Moses, to, to go on the journey to remember a story and the women, the, this, this network that you've talked about um, and the reminder is when his life goes sideways and he has to run, it's to the network that he runs. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. Um, and, and remembering an identity that is deeper yes. um, than the things that pass for privilege that are actually built upon the oppression of others. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, it, it's... Uh, uh, Ella Baker saying Martin didn't make the movement, the movement made Martin. That's right. And if, if Martin Luther King was made by the movement, so too Moses. Yes. Um, and part of us going down with Moses is realizing who he's going down with, who have formed him right. and the, the invitation it is to remember an identity that's deeper um, than the cheap forms of, oppression which pass as who we are instead of our baptisms, this baptism, what it is to go through this water. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine that he heard the liberation lullabies sung by his birth mother. I imagine he watched his sister. I am, I continue to just think, I continue to be amazed at Bethia because she had to teach him what justice looked like from Mm from the palace of injustice. Yes. Because I wonder, uh, how do I do that for my kids? How am I, I yeah, totally. This is parenting today. How am yep. I going to help them see, name injustice and see what justice might look like from within the palace? That, I, yeah. I wish there was a whole, I wish there were more verses about what she did because I, I'm amazed. Because at the end of the day, he knew who he was. Yeah. Can you imagine Moses not knowing he was Hebrew? The story would be over. She preserved his sense of identity. He knew who he was. And when he couldn't find solidarity out in the brickyard those days that he tried, you know, he found it over in the desert of Midian with the seven sisters. I think they taught Mm. him what solidarity looked like. Wow. These women taught him what liberation looked like and what some of the practice. Yeah, wow. Um, Without the women, we wouldn't have Moses. That's right. Hmm. And so we need them together, right? We, I think the story starts off with the 12 names of the sons of Jacob, right? We get the leadership <laughs> structure, and then we get a story that gives us the 12 women, an alternative yes. structure. And I, I think what we see is that you, you have to have the full, the full complement of men and women working together to be free. So women, mm. women across the socioeconomic divides but also men and women, we together, we only get free together. Yeah. Anyway, this reminds, I mean, that's what I believe. 
Jared just mentioned Amen. Amen. Ella, Ella Baker. And there's just, as you're talking again, I'm just thinking about Ella Baker and Martin and, and even, um, I mean, there was known conflict in terms of just their vision for how to work for justice. <laughs> right. I, yeah. And, and she was suspicious of the, you know, the public figure up front and that yeah. everything circulating around this, you know, public figure. The and Lord. So, yeah, the Lord, right? And so, I mean, <laughs> so she advises, right, SNCC, right, as their mm. SCLC and SNCC, um, they want to, well, before it's SNCC, they want, you know, the young people are flipping this world upside down. And, you know, the SCLC, all the, you know, pastors, these male pastors want to bring, bring them in, right? Yeah. Um, mm. And she's the one who steps in to advise them not to, right? Um, she has the courage and the vision um, to let them loose, to to release them right out into the yeah. world, um, and how important that was. So anyway, it's just as you're, I'm just thinking about those stories and how important well, it and is. And Mahalia Jackson, right? Mahalia Jackson, yeah. yeah. I mean, she I was mean, like, tell them, tell them about the dream, tell Martin. Them about the dream. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't for the woman who knew him well enough to say, hey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 And that beautiful yeah. partnership. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and the importance of what we're doing now is, you know, there's that um, patriarchal saying that behind every good, uh, behind every man is a, a good woman, like whatever, a su yeah. successful man is a good woman. And what we're doing is actually going, no, in, in front of every public male figure is a whole lot of women <laughs> who, who have made it possible for that. And, and at this stage where, um, uh, hopefully we're doing the work to go, actually, why are we deferring to um, men that what I hear you drawing us into, Kelly, is what doing is building community, not creating superstars. Mm -hmm. um, and that those of us who end up with any platform, it's hopefully... Uh, to practice hospitality that it's never ours and it's to be shared with others and it should be burnt to the ground at any stage where you feel like it needs to be protected at the cost of truth telling and um, uh, God's reign bringing and um, it, what it is to, I mean, we're, we're talking the freedom movement. Um, let's leave, use freedom movement language, the beloved community, what it is to usher in, us together being a beloved community. Mm -hmm. Kelly, I, I'm aware um, you moved us in a direction um, with COVID-19, mm -hmm. with the coronavirus. Um, I'm very aware that uh, there, there, there are those on the banks who are talking about, um, oh, how, how do I raise children now that they're at home with me and I can't take them to... Uh, that's one conversation. And then there's a conversation of um, I've had to swim through the water so my child can find safety at this time. Um, I would love to hear from you both in terms of with COVID-19, with the coronavirus, what does it look like to parent in such ways that we sensitise our kids mm -hmm. um, to the suffering of others in ways that are age-appropriate? Um, with so much anxiety, with, with so much um, uh, worry, with news reports that are constantly about, uh, in Australia, we're down to no meetings over 100, but I know in parts of um, 
the nation you find yourself in, uh, I've got friends in San, San Fran who are saying, yeah, we, we can't go next door. Like um, uh, the, there's talk of it being illegal to have people over. Kelly, Drew, what does it look like um, for the little people that um, you've been entrusted to raise to do discipleship at, at this moment? How, how are you navigating in that in such ways that um, uh, both protect and empower? I'm asking because it's hard and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Drew, you want to take the lead? Yeah, um, I mean, we're, we're trying to figure this thing out, right? Um, I mean, yeah. I think we've been trying to explain one, just what is going on, which is, mm-hmm. I think, hard for our kids are eight, six, and three. So just trying mm-hmm. to help them understand the seriousness of it and the impact that it's having on our neighbors, I think is pretty, yeah. is the first step for us. But then, you know, we've been calling up, for us, I mean, our we, my wife and I were making a list of some of the elderly folks in our community who could use help in terms of, you know, getting groceries. And so, you know, we've yeah. done that um, just a little bit. I mean, we, if they ask, if they need it more, they'll hopefully ask us um, and we'll trust us to help them out. But we've done that a little bit already so far. And so our kid, I mean, we don't, we never, our philosophy has always been to be open and transparent. It's not necessarily, I don't know if we've explained exactly what we're doing or whatever, but I mean, they're, they're present for the, the conversations that we're having. So they're not mm. shy. We, we don't shelter them from pretty much hardly anything. I mean, we, we talk about race, white supremacy, mm. funding, because they go to a school that's underfunded. I mean, they, mm. they understand that you could have a, a, an intelligent conversation with them about these things because it impacts their lives and we want them to, you know, have a sense and an understanding of the world that we navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if, I mean, there's, I need to continue to think through in terms of, you know, how to, um, disciple my 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 children as it relates to Corona, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. an open question still for me in terms of what does it mean to guide them through in kind of meaningful ways. Certainly, in our prayer time at mm. night, um, praying for our neighbors, um, you know, praying for those who might mm-hmm. lose their jobs or businesses and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, praying for those that don't have support, um, but. But yeah, still a lot of questions. Yeah, I honestly, I probably could be so much more. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you all are thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, right now, my my children are, um, they're four months apart. As I mm. said, I, I adopted them. And so they're not biologically, but they are four months apart. So we treat them like twins. <laughs> yeah. But my mm. kids are 16 years old. So they're okay. high school. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I have only had a few there in Burundi with my husband right now. Okay. Yeah. Cool. While I'm here in the States for a little while. Um, and you know, so I get to talk to them, you know, obviously on the phone, my son texted mm. my son called me the other day, mom, I think I have the virus. And he, he wanted to run down symptoms and you know, he was wow. concerned. he's always been a little more concerned, but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to ask me, but, but I'm not there day to day during this. Um, and so what my husband, I know, Claude was t- telling me what he's doing is, you know, he says, I'm making sure I have breakfast with them every single morning. Yeah, beautiful. You know, to help set the, to set the, the tone for their day. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be the one to drop them off, to let them know you're okay, to let them know that I'm here. And then, you know, he often, in Burundi, a lot of meetings between men happen at night and whatnot. But he says, I have made sure every single night I am there for dinner. And he says, yeah, I, he says I don't leave the table until they're done asking questions. Mm. And so he says the meals That's have been right. a lot longer, but he said it, it it's unhurried intentional time yeah. and he says you will be amazed he said you would be amazed at the amount of questions that they have things they're hearing at school things they're reading in snippets of the news um he says they you know it's really just being present for the conversations um other than getting calls about symptoms i think he's doing a great job because they seem to be you know he seems to be giving them what they most need which is stability and and access to him Mm. Now, they have the benefit of having a dad who uh, is a, right, is a community development practitioner. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was meeting with World Health Organization leaders the last two days trying to come up with strategies for our health clinic and our schools and the bank, et cetera. Um, And so Mm. they get, you know, he talks to them about those conversations and what the expectations are when the virus hits Burundi and, Yes. Um, again, doesn't, doesn't shield him for anything from anything, but, um, I would say some of the work, and this might be the case for both of you, I'm assuming is that your kids are already being well discipled and well prepared by the life they live with you. You know, mm-hmm. our kids, since they were little, they go to church every Sunday with their auntie because she goes to a Karundi speaking church mm-hmm. and then go to the poor neighborhood where my husband grew up. And they play with all the kids that my husband, you know, like where my husband, yeah. they, their friends are people who are like, they, they they have friends who um, are the rich kids in the country and the poorest kids in the country. And they have learned to develop sensitivities to those socioeconomics, to develop real friendships. Um, we have these conversations all the time about yeah especially about the Moses story and these women, you better believe my son and I have had some ongoing That's correct. because he's had a lot of questions about his birth mom. And so we, these are, these are the stories that fund yeah. our imagination as adopted kids. This is the language we use, yeah. um, but it also is about justice and seeing and loving the other. And so they already have that infrastructure mm-hmm. and I think this right drew, this plugs right in. Right. They already have the scaffolding, that yes. we developed with them, right? right. right. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I love hearing, Kelly, that um, part of the process for your book has been conversation with your kids. That's, mm. that's fantastic. That's really, mm. that's really great. Um, yeah, it's interesting and uh, maybe we... We'll decide what we edit after Drew, but I'll, I'll share and, and then we can, uh, but I'll share with you both and maybe with thousands and thousands of people if we choose to leave it in. Um, uh, so my boys actually aren't in uh, the city that we live in at the moment. Um, so Kat has raised the boys by herself um, mm. since uh, Winnie was two and Hugo was um you know, in her arms uh, under the age of one um, and moved back to Australia after being in Brooklyn. And um, uh, the boy's biological dad, who's, who's a great 
guy. Um, uh, he is currently um, on Survivor Australia. So he, his work is he's an international model and he's back in Australia. Um, uh, and so the boys are there for, for that, which um, uh, it's, it's a reality of, of parenting when, uh, you know, there, there are different priorities or um, visions and, um, and uh, yeah, that, that's a really interesting um, cat has, the boys are very, so they're 10 and 12, but they're both very young um, in, in the, the sweetest. Mm. Um, so for them, like uh, me living at First Home Project, um, uh, these aren't quote-unquote refugees. These are friends for them. These are like, um, <laughs> this isn't, like they don't put people in categories of, yeah. um, oh, they're dealing with this or... Um, it's just um, uh, that's Ahmad and um, uh, that's Tafik and you, you know what I mean? Like it, it's just um, uh, and, and trying to talk about those things in ways that are age appropriate. But interestingly enough, it is, it is the scriptures um, that often exposes them to a lot of stuff because the questions right. that, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Bible isn't always age appropriate, right? Like it's, right, 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 um, right, right, right. So, I mean, Hugo's hilarious. He's the little comedian. And uh, uh, during uh, Lent, one of the lectionary readings last week that we do at the, the dinner table and then discuss was the woman caught in adultery. And um, Hugo's like, what grows on an adult tree? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. Uh, it's, um, uh and so part of the thing for us at the moment is, okay, how, how do we make sure they're not fearful? Um, uh, but how do we get creative? And I don't know if you remember the movie, um, is it It's a Beautiful Life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You um, talked about that with Renee. Oh, really? Yes. No way. That's so funny. She was saying it was her favourite movie growing up. And, uh, or, you know, when she, once she saw it. Kelly, so literally I've journaled this week um, about that movie and this moment, and I, I forgot that connection. Yeah, she Maybe I was channeling yeah, Renee. Yeah. Dear Renee. Um, uh, dear listener, if you have not listened to the episode with Renee, that, that's your favourite inverse episode, right, Kelly? Well, that one and the one with Walter Brug, the two with Walter Brugman. <laughs> Oh yeah, the Bruges. It's it's Bruges. Yeah, he's he's pretty phenomenal. But Renee's um, so one of the things that started in Australia and I know has spread internationally because of the nature of social media is the fear around toilet paper. Yes. Oh right, right. Which is just ridiculous. Like, um, so one of the things that we're doing as a family is um, we're tithing one roll. It's our toilet paper tithe, oh. and we're putting that aside and um uh in your culture you have this strange practice of toilet papering houses if they don't give you lollies or candy as you say at um uh so one of the things that came up for me in prayer about how how like the movie um you know in the midst of 
the horrors of um, the Third Reich and um, what the, the fear um, as a, a Jewish father um, for the child and how to both protect the child and um, also keep. So with the boys, we're letting um, them do knock and run with toilet paper for vulnerable uh, like elderly people that we know of and them writing a little note and leaving it, but allowing it to be anonymous. So it's playful, right? Like it's, um, how do we bless someone? How how do we, it's, it's cheeky. Um, uh, you know, ring the bell and run, try and not get caught. Um, (laughs) and, uh, there's a couple of other friends in our neighborhood and, um, uh, they're interested in doing it with their kids as well, but finding ways that people are so fearful around something. Right. Um, and even if it's just that one role and it's small, like it's insignificant, it actually doesn't change anything other than us mm-hmm. and trying to find for the boys things that, um, yeah, w- what's our pushing across, um, it's wonderfully subversive, though. You are yeah. teaching them the art of holy subversion at a young yes. age. Very creative. But I like that. I love it. Like, it, if, if it's, I mean, for me, if it's not creative, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, and that I think great social action um, and, and my training, like, in terms of my initial studies for fine arts, um, that I approach. Um, nonviolent direct action as like a installation. Like for me, it it shouldn't merely read as protest, but a provocation that does get people talking. And right. that should be true of um, it's compassion that's always creative. Mm-hmm. I mean, the devil's pretty boring. It's always right. the same moves. It's the spirit of God that it's actually got new possibilities for a new world that right. surprise and make us laugh and it engages our shadow. Um, and actually calls forth something in us to be transformed. And so just just trying to find those little things that um, Hugo and Winnie are going to go, this is awesome, like, this is so much fun, right. and, and tell, tell their friends and um, it not be like a social media campaign or, or something. Um, uh, I'm fasting from Twitter during Lent, but I'm so over social media in, in general and enjoying so much more sending a small group of friends um, s- stuff that actually builds community. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on Sunday we, we have a, a book study uh, and we've actually opened it up for patrons who, who are interested to, to join us. Um, uh, we're doing Romans Disarmed by yeah. Sylvia Keysmat and Brian Walsh, which is a fantastic text. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost um, done reading it. It's, I read it this summer. Yeah, it's yeah. great, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. Oh goodness! Yeah, um, yeah. So we're, we're looking forward to having them on the show yeah. coming up. Um, Wonderful. Uh, we nearly had Sylvia on Sylvia on two years back. Um, uh, now we're just talking like it's not the podcast. Maybe we leave this stuff in, Drew. Like we can kind of do yeah. editorial discussion afterwards. Yeah. Maybe I should be more vulnerable um, uh, and talk about, but particularly at this time, I think what we need to be doing is uh, building communities where we can be honest about our anxieties so they can move from, um, uh, my friend Mark talks about um, anxieties moving to concerns. Concerns um, 
you can do something with. Anxieties keep you up at night. Um, and that's a, that's a very, like, you know, that soul work stuff, that, that's stuff yeah. to take to prayer and, and wrestle with. How do I move? Um, uh, th- this is Red Glasses Mark um, in San Fran. Oh, Mark's Mark and Lisa. Yeah. Yes, I love good. That. Yeah. So um, uh, credit to yeah. where it's due, that, that's Mark's line around anxieties to concerns. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so uh, we're taking our um, book study online as a way of um, uh, people having a, a space to actually express what's going on at the moment. We've got friends who are losing work, had a conversation with a friend about um, they might have to pull their kids out of school already, um, uh, not because of the virus, but because the school that their kids are at, um, that they've been struggling to afford anyway, but wanted to provide that opportunity that they're not going to be able to. Um, like it's uh, the Australian dollar is worth 60 cents to the American dollar. And uh, our friend Reese, who produces these episodes, um, <laughs> I should have paid him weeks ago. <laughs> I should have paid him weeks ago up front uh, because it's just got a lot more expensive for, um, uh, and these are little concerns. Uh, These are concerns of those of the courts of Pharaoh when others are like, if I don't risk getting the virus Mm -hmm. at work, my kids don't have food on their table. That's right. Um, That's right. I've been talking a lot. But yeah, that, that's us kind of. As Kat and I have wrestled with, um, how do we how do we disciple our, our boys in such ways that the the playfulness of the Holy Spirit is present even in times of great anxiety? That's some of the stuff that's going on for us. Yeah. Well, and well, years ago, over ten years ago, Walter Brueggemann gave a sermon when uh, when Rob Bell was still at Mars Hill. So that tells you how long yeah. the sermon was. And I'll confess, I've listened to the sermon more than a hundred times over the last 10 years. It's been the most formative sermon I've ever listened to. And he's going through the book of Isaiah. And, L- you know, it's old run and not grow weak. <laughs> what? Is that the text? Um, uh, no, he goes through the whole book of Isaiah, like the whole oh, really? sweep of it in like wow. 50 minutes. It's massive. Oh, and it's become actually the scaffolding to a, theology of community development that I'm working on anyway. Ooh. But yeah. Well, Kelly, we're going to have to have you back on to talk about that. Know, That's very exciting. Our interest now. That, I can't wait to write that book. That must, that might be the fourth or fifth, but someday, but we're working on it anyways. At the end of the sermon, he's just walked us through Isaiah and just, and he says, Hey, I bet you, you know, there's like thousands of thousands of kids in the child, you know, in, in the kids services. And I bet they belong to some of you. And everybody laughs because, you know, you kind of think it's an off-the-cuff thing. And then he just leans in and says, of course, the book of Isaiah is impossible. Of course it is. Mm. But imagine you sitting down with the neighbor who's unlike you. And your kids are at the table. Mm. And they will imagine new immigration policy. Imagine Mm. your kids with you when you are feeding those who are hungry or you're helping they will be the ones who will come up with a new kind of economy. And he just, he's the idea that as our kids are with us and they are witness to and participants in our efforts, 
that right that they will be these they are the seeds that will imagine the new city mm-hmm. and and there's something about that that when I get really dissuaded by you know oh am I parenting them well enough am I you know are we deconstructing enough are we talking enough are we playing and imagining enough is I realize look at who their dad is I don't know mm-hmm. anybody who loves and cares for people the way my husband does. That's their mm. dad. They see that. They are part of that. They're, you know, the other, the other day, my son, uh, when during, we were all together in Burundi at Christmas and my, my husband gave them a task during Christmas break. You each have to imagine where you want to be when you're our age. So mm. when you're 51, where do you all want to be? And how, you know, so at the end of the break, we all went out to our favorite restaurant in Burundi and um, he wanted the executive summary. And my son says, well, I want to take over the bank that you're running. Hmm. <laughs> learn, you know, so he talks about why he's going to learn finance and he wants to kind of, you know, take over the bank, the operations. And then he wants to move into politics. He wants to be the president of Burundi someday. <laughs> mm. Wow. But as he's talking, he's, you know, my husband's like, well, why? Right. Is it the fame? Is it the money? Is it the prestige? What? And he's like, I want to be able to make big decisions to help people. Because you talk about how it's so hard banking for the poor people because there are are decisions that need to be made by the government and they're not making them. But I want to be in a position to make the decisions that will allow money to flow to those families that need it. Like, I realized he has been soaking in the example of his father. Yeah, beautiful. He gets it. I want to break the bottleneck to help the people who need the help. You know? Mm. And so I think you know, these are the, they're going to, uh, being with us is actually, if, if we're doing our best, best at being faithful, you know, they'll, they'll get it and, yeah. they'll, and they'll take it to places that we can't. And that gives me great hope actually <laughs> on days yeah. when I think I can't do it right. And I'm like, well, I'll do my best and trust they're, you know, they're going to see and they'll take it further. That's yeah, no, beautiful. That's good. that's good. Yeah. I've, I mean, now, again, my kids are young. What, what you're saying is hopeful for me because I'm like, today I was frustrated because my, my older two are just like annoying each other and kicking and hitting each other. I'm like, are they learning anything that I'm teaching them? You know, but, but we, but um, it's always awesome are. when like you're somewhere to talk about nonviolence and your, your right, kids right. are just going for yeah. it, right? Punching it's like, each ah. other in the gut or something, right? But, um, but we do, you know, they've, they've, we've taken them as a family gone to vigils because we had uh, vigils because um, in Pennsylvania, we have one of the detention centers are in Berks County, which is only an hour away from us. And so, right. you know, everyone thinks of like Texas, but we got one. I mean, it's kind of in our backyard. It's an hour away. And so we've, you know, worked with other um, church groups to hold these vigils right at the detention center across the street because we get arrested if you go on their property. Okay. But um but we've had our kids there, um, you know, to just be present or when we've had events at the Capitol and protest things, they've been there. They've seen me speak, you know, there. and so yeah. just, I, I mean, sometimes there's times when I can't always have them with me, but as much as possible, I love that they're present so that they can see the things that, you know, we care about and value along with all the other stuff that we do, our daily lives that we carry in the decisions and practices of our family. But, but I do think the presence, right. And walking with them and sharing those experiences together as a family are important. It's, it is. And and when you get those moments, you're like, okay, good. (laughs) 
It's right. all converging. I just had to wait until you were 16. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. He still wants to be a soccer star first. He still wants to be a billionaire. Oh, Don't Kelly, it's all sure. about priorities. Sure. That's right. Sure. sure. But he says, eventually, I do really want to leverage all this for other people, Mom. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Great. The greatest amongst us will be a servant. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, dreams of greatness aren't the problem. It's what we do with them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, this has been really special. Uh, Kelly, this is my favourite time of the week because I get to hang out with Drew and um, we get to open up the scriptures with um, people that are, are new friends and old friends doing uh, phenomenal things, uh, some of them in very public ways and some of them in very secret ways, mm-hmm. um, and I love it. But this, this conversation has been really special. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so excited about your book. Thank you. And um, yes. thank you for the copy that, that you sent through. But as a way of supporting you, we'll, we will get... A, a copy uh, as well and I encourage people if you're listening if you've enjoyed this conversation um, you're gonna love the book uh, Kelly you're a gift and uh, you're a gift to the body internationally and we're we're thankful for uh, not just your intelligence but um, uh, your kindness and um, uh, the way that you integrate so many important things so if you want to come back anytime, particularly around that Isaiah and community development, wow, oh, that's yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, both Drew and I, um, for those who are listening. <laughs> I would love to. Um, yeah, well, let's do it. That'd be that a lot of fun. I really think for any of us who are doing long-term community-based transformational work, um, mm. Isaiah is, it is the theological grid for how my husband and I do the work that we do. You know, he's the practitioner. Mm and I'm the theologian. And, and sometimes I push him, Jubilee means this. And he's like, yes, but we can't do that in the banking system without getting fines. And, <laughs> and, and, and other times the push goes the other way where he's like, this is what happened. What does it mean? And you know, mm. so we push each other and it's, uh, it's been beautiful. But I think it will, I hope it'll be a gift for other people who are doing long-term work. I think it, is, it has been a gift to us, and so I would love to talk about it sometime with other practitioners. That would be so fun. Yeah. Oh, let's That's make great. that happen. That would yeah. be great. This has been so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for, on such short notice, having me. I so appreciate it. It's been so, so wonderful, so generative. Oh, good. Good. Well, we'd love to have you actually pray for mm. our listeners. I, I know that so many people... Um, that work of taking anxiety and turning it into concerns that become compassionate action is hard. And um, in the midst of people losing uh, jobs and uh, worried about um, what the future holds, um, uh, somebody I know, their their son is quarantined at the moment. It's um, it's a scary time for a lot of people. Kelly, would you would you pray for us? Um, would you pray for those who are listening? Um, that that we could be salt and light during this difficult time. Mm-hmm. Oh, Holy Father. We invite you to step forward into the story where we can see you. Mm. That, that uh, sometimes we need to see you in the midst of it. 
thank you for the example of these women in the Exodus story. They, mm. they show us what faithfulness looks like in duress. Mm. Yes. They show us and give us hope. Yes. And Lord, I pray that they will ignite our imaginations for ways that under, mm. under, under the, the extreme duress of this current time that we can cross the Nile to be with one another. Mm. Yes, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who need somebody to step in, to come into the water, to, to step away from some of the benefits and step into the danger with them. Lord, bring about partners, neighbors, friends that will bring us the people that we need to make this journey with. And yeah. for some of us, we need to be those people. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to, to disrobe and disarm some of our privilege and step in. Mm-hmm. Jesus, help us be that fabric woven together so that we can make it to the other side together, all of us free, surviving together. Oh, Jesus, we're just at the beginning, but I pray that you will guide us. Mm. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And all the best for the book. If, if there's any way um, uh, we can be of use about sharing yeah. how important it is, please reach out. Uh, well, thank you. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.